Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us strong. Hello, I'm Roscoe Mathieu, pronouns he, him, stranger, and welcome to Solidarity Forever, the history of American labor. Episode 7, Lowell 2, Revenge of the Mill Girls. Long ago, in his History of Rome days, historian Mike Duncan explained that a good movie sequel should be bigger, with more action, and higher stakes. What was true of the Gracchi is true of the Lowell strikes. In 1834, the Mill Girls struck over a 12% pay cut and knuckled under after alienating the entire town against them, guiltily slinking back into the textile mills after a week. Now, in 1836, the bosses are considering an even worse pay cut, and the women are suddenly thrust out of doors because they can't pay the rent in their company-sponsored boarding houses. And this won't be no one-week strike, not after the girls have been licking their wounds for two years and learning from the momentous labor actions of 1835. From the construction sites of Philadelphia to the Baltimore docks, to their own sisters in Patterson, New Jersey, and Maniunk, Pennsylvania. And how will it all end? Keep listening for the thrilling story of Lowell II, Revenge of the Mill Girls. 1836 was a very different year than 1834. Instead of a depression in the textile market, business was booming. Textiles were in high demand in Andrew Jackson's America, and even in markets over the seas like France and Britain, driving the national economy along with its sister market, raw cotton. But what's the dark cloud behind any boomtime silver lining? That's right, inflation. Everyone was making more money, and everyone was paying more money. And it seemed like the costs of everything, from a bolt of cotton to a dozen eggs, were going up every year. And the girls in Lowell feeling the worst pinch were... the boarding house keepers. The women... As Lowell National Park's website says, in charge of cleaning, cooking, and caring for the workers living on factory grounds, end quote, needed to buy eggs, vinegar, and smelling salts for the dozen or two dozen girls shoved into their boarding houses. The summer of 1836, the boarding house keepers demanded an audience with the management of the mills and got it. Because, remember, by the terms of polis and knock-on decisions like Fisher, Organizing is only illegal if it's the workers doing it. The women with the scrub brushes, rolling pins, and folk remedies wanted, no, demanded an increase in their fees for each girl's room and board to cover the rising costs both at that moment and in the future. The bosses responded by increasing the money deducted from each mill girl's earnings to pass on the cost of the rising cost of eggs to the workers eating them for their breakfast every morning and keep the profits of the booming trade tucked safely in their own silk pockets. Instead of $1.25 deducted from each week's pay, they were raising the price by $0.25 cents to $1.50, or, in other words, cutting the girls' pay another $0.25 cents a week. At least, that's how the mill girls saw it, and when it happens to you, I bet that's how you see it, too. But, as her old friend Harriet Hanson Robinson, then 11 years old, puts it in her exhaustive autobiography, Loom and Spindle, cutting down the wages was not their only grievance, nor the only cause of this strike. 
Hitherto, the corporations had paid 25 cents a week toward the board of each operative, and now it was their purpose to have the girls pay the sum, and this, in addition to the cut in the wages, would make a difference of at least one dollar a week. A dollar a week is quite a bit when coffee cost 12 cents a cup plus markup. Harriet is cagey about the planning, using the passive voice. It was decided. This was done. While I don't imagine she was invited to the organizing committee meetings, it's clear she knew what was going on and what was being planned, as clearly as any of the grown women around her. She comes closest to spilling the beans in the following passage. My own recollection of this first strike, or turnout, as it was called, is very vivid. I worked in a lower room where I had heard the proposed strike fully, if not vehemently, discussed. I had been an ardent listener to what was said against the attempt at oppression on the part of the corporation, and naturally I took sides with the strikers. It's worth noting here that one of the foremost boarding house keepers was none other than Harriet Hansen the Elder, young Harriet's mother. Keep that in mind, as little Harriet is overhearing agitation and organization for the strike, she's sealing her lips at home such that her mother, on whose behalf the bosses are cutting Harriet's pay, never realizes what's coming. In the lead-up to the strike, the women experimented with other forms of direct action. They started staggering their shifts, forcing a slowdown in the factories that the bosses had been speeding up for years. They worked one workroom at a time, rather than start with a single dramatic wave of the bonnet, to both ensure secrecy from the company spies, and to increase the resolve and solidarity of the striking women. This is an important lesson in itself. After years of following the boss's orders, people need practice working together, standing up for their rights, and participating. They need a few small successes, proof that this really can work, before they take a big risk. These efforts build solidarity and resolve, as they did in Lowell back in 1836. It was a custom in Lowell, back in the 1830s, that at every 4th of July, every New Year's Day, in a word, every public occasion, that the women of the factories would spill out into the streets for a procession, somewhere between the National Guard and the high school marching band. This is a nice note from Mrs. Robinson, because it tells us that the procession of women to come wasn't something worked up whole cloth in some boarding house back room, it was adapting the down-home traditions and all-American customs to the needs of labor. As you organize, look around your office, your town, and your industry. Are there customs you could co-opt or adapt? Could you hold a worker's pizza party the same day your bosses try to buy you off with a slice of pepperoni? Everyone show up wearing a union button at the company holiday party? Take a stand at a city council meeting. Keep your eyes and your mind open. People respond to symbols, to traditions, to customs. Finally, one October day, the day came. With pride, Harriet Hanson Robinson recounts, When the day came on which the girls were to turn out, those in the upper room started first, and so many of them left that our mill was at once shut down. Then, when the girls in my room stood irresolute, uncertain what to do, asking each other, would you, or 
shall we turn out? And not one of them having the courage to lead off, I, who began to think they would not go out after all their talk, became impatient and started on ahead, saying, with childish bravado, I don't care what you do, I am going to turn out, whether anyone else does or not. And I marched out and was followed by the others. As I looked back at the long line that followed me, I was more proud than I have ever been since at any success I may have achieved, and more proud than I shall ever be again until my own beloved state gives to its women citizens the right of suffrage. That is, the vote. At 11 years old, this little girl was leading her co-workers out to the streets to fight for their rights. I can only pray my little union maid is so brave and perceptive when she's 11 years old. Mrs. Robinson continues, It was estimated that as many as 12 or 1,500 girls turned out and walked in procession through the streets. They had neither flags nor music, but sang songs, a favorite but rather inappropriate one being a parody on I Won't Be a Nun. Oh, isn't it a pity such a pretty girl as I should be sent to the factory to pine away and die. Oh, I cannot be a slave, I will not be a slave, for I'm so fond of liberty that I cannot be a slave. Uh, I do apologize for not singing, but I couldn't actually find the tune to I Won't Be a Nun, so I wasn't sure what the melody was supposed to be. Let me take a moment to talk about labor and music. This is the first mention of specific labor songs associated with labor rights, demonstrations, unions, and strikes, and the first in a long, long tradition of adapting popular songs with labor-friendly lyrics. As you all will have noticed by now, Solidarity Forever, the tune at the beginning and end of this podcast, is set to the melody of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Other great labor playbook standards bear similar histories. Union Made is a parody of the Boston Bugler, and Casey Jones' The Union Scab, a parody of Casey Jones. There's even a parody of This Land is Your Land, with the lyrics extolling labor's role in building America. Which is a neat trick, since This Land is Your Land was originally a labor song. These songs are a powerful way of teaching labor history when the public schools fail us. It's through labor songs in Rise Up Singing, the great leftist songbook, that I first learned about the Valentine's Day Massacre and the Battle of Blair Mountain. Those of us raised by hippies probably heard Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's Ohio a long time before we learned about Kent State. One of the most revered labor songs, Joe Hill, commemorates a labor martyr while promising solidarity after his death. These songs are also visions of the future and acts of defiance in the present. The verses to Solidarity Forever assure us, In our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, and promise that we can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old. The future of We Shall Overcome is spelled out in its name. We shall overcome someday. Talk in Union spells out the steps to forming a union and what will come when you make management sign the contract. Finally, Labor songs bind us together. As dorky as they are, sing-alongs create that sense of camaraderie, that solidarity, between all us workers. It's why you see at least one person strumming a guitar at any strike. 
even humming Battle Hymn of the Republic in the hallway can bolster flagging spirits, as I learned one afternoon at the Beast. As you're building your own union, come up with your own lyrics, either adding verses to the songs we already have, parodying a Taylor Swift song or stealing a K-pop beat, or even coming up with a tune of your own if you have the talent. Text everyone the lyrics and sing along together about your troubles at your workplace with your bosses and what you want to see change. Now then, with that sidebar done, let's get back to Lowell. Mrs. Robinson is too modest in her estimation, 12 to 1500. Modern historical assessment cites between 1,500 and 2,000 girls taking to the streets, shutting down all the machines on their way out. I can't tell whether or not the mill girls planned what happened next, but after that demonstration, they started by a stepped-up version of their shift system of striking, working the factories at reduced output as women alternated taking their 12-hour shifts and marching in the streets. But, as the strike wore on, Many, if not most, of the women melted back to the countryside, returning to their family farms, and waited for the news that the mills had finally caved. As the strike wore on, there simply weren't enough women left in Lowell to work the machines, and there wouldn't be until the mills either gave in or broke the strike. This wasn't 1834 all over again. This was something new. Music they may not have had, but they had signs, they had sashes, they had token men in suits marching with them. Over at rjeanmathieu.com, that's r-j-e-a-n-m-a-t-h-i-e-u.com, I've put up a newspaper illustration from nearby Lynn, Massachusetts. They fought the war of words in those newspapers, calling the proposed room and board increase a pay cut, which is exactly what it was. They appealed to the patriotic history of the revolution and, of course, compared their situation to chattel slavery. The last was becoming more and more powerful a rhetorical appeal. Abolitionism was gaining steam in the free north. And, considering how long the strike lasted, they must have had a strike fund. Because those machines Harriet and her sisters in arms shut down on the way out the door, they stayed silent for months and it hurt the Boston Associates and their competitors every day no new cotton bolts rolled out of the factory doors. The source of the strike fund was the Factory Girls Association. Founded back in 1834, it comes into its full flower here. The FGA kept its girls paid up at their boarding houses as weeks turned into months, keeping them housed and fed even without any income from the mills. The strike lasted at least two months and had varied endings. Dubovsky and McCartan in Labor in America are silent on the outcome. Loomis, in A History of America in Ten Strikes, considers the strike a complete failure. The Lowell Mill girls, he says, did not win their strike. Philip Dre's There is Power in a Union treats it as a complete success, stating baldly, the mills, caught off guard by the women's actions and lacking the warehoused inventory of cloth that had protected them in 1834, eventually conceded and restored the 25 cents to the workers' pay. Harriet Hanson Robinson herself says this strike did no good, adding, the dissatisfaction of the operative subsided or burned itself out, and though the authorities did not accede to their demands, the majority returned to work, and the corporation went on cutting wages. 
This is not unusual in labor history, or in any history. Sometimes the results are complicated, or hard to interpret, or success from one theory of history and a failure according to some other historiography. Myself, I believe the National Park Service, which states that two of the mills gave in and suspended the 25 cent increase, while others negotiated a smaller cut, and yet other mills held out stubbornly. By 1837, though, all the mills were back to work, including Harriet Hansen Robinson's. Which was good for her, because the mills in a fit of petty revenge on the daughter fired the mother from her job as boarding housekeeper. One agent of the corporation saying, Mrs. Hansen, you could not prevent the older girls in your boarding house from turning out, but your daughter is a child, and her you can control. Young Harriet was the family's only breadwinner for another four grueling years, moving up through the ranks as she grew, before she left the mills to study French and Latin at Lowell High School, and leaving for good when she met a certain Mr. Robinson. Allow me to quote her one last time, though, of the factory town she left behind. As the wages became more and more reduced, the best portion of the girls left and went to their homes, or to other employments that were fast opening to women, until there were very few of the old guard left, and thus the status of the factory system of New England gradually became what we know it to be today. This, in a paragraph, is the subsequent history of New England. The wages reduced and reduced again, fees and room and board raised, until all those fresh-faced Lowell Mill girls came no more to Lowell, and the bosses hit on the idea of buying cheap labor from starving immigrants as hungry for work as they were for a crust of bread and a cold corner in an outbuilding. There will be a last hurrah for the working women of Lowell about ten years later, but the myth had been shattered once and for all. The Matchbox Lowell Mill girls slowly faded from public consciousness, a dismal failure a few decades after her birth as management dropped all pretense of paternalistic concern, or any concern at all, for their employees. They always do. They always do. I don't care how supportive or inclusive or friendly or cool your company is. Those qualities will be the first to go the moment your bosses or their bosses discover they can make a fast buck without them. They can't help it. It's like a dog chasing cars. After all, the competition is cutting costs wherever they can, tightening their belts, getting by on less, which means your bosses have to, too. Or, rather, they have to cut your costs, tell you to tighten your belt, demand you get by on less. The Beast, outsourcing frontline tech support to Asian and Latin American temp agencies, is the same inexorable logic as the Lowell Mills hiring starving Irish girls for pennies on the American dollar. If you have a good thing going at your company, with sympathetic bosses and full health care and a fun and dynamic environment, more power to you! I wish I had your job! It's important for you to organize to keep all those things, to put them down on paper and make it legally binding and make your bosses sign it. After all, it's what they were offering you anyway, you tell them. Why would they hesitate to promise to keep offering them? The Beast was the first time in my career that the management treated me like a human being as a matter of course. It shocked me, and it's the reason why, even when things started going south, I stuck around. I've spent years at a time during recessions without work, 
I've had previous bosses load shotguns and tell me that instead of two weeks' notice, I had two minutes' head start. I've had my final paycheck stolen from more jobs than I can count. On two continents. We really did have a good thing going when I got hired. But then the inexorable logic came and, just like in Lowell, the company sold its good reputation for a quick buck and a boost in next quarter's earnings, regardless of what it did to us, the employees, or to their own clients. That inexorable logic that the bosses, as your boss, don't care about you any farther than they can get money out of you is labor history. It's the history of the Lowell Mill Girl, and it's my own personal history. And if you don't like that labor history, go out and make some labor history of your own. Next time, we're taking a break from the historical narrative to go over the quick and dirty theory of labor organizing. Our first how-to episode is going to start us off at the very, very basics. As Philip Dre could tell you, there is power in a union. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever.